Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. This week, we'll be talking with a blind music producer to learn what a producer actually does and how the technology has changed over the years. We'll speak with Ross McGregor, a blind music producer who has produced over 300 albums during his career and was recently presented with the Australian Hands of Fame Award for his lifetime achievements. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Ross McGregor. I think really a lot of it comes back to your attitude and like how you look uh, at life. You know, in, in life... You can say we have a on one side we have a, a lot of negatives and the other side we have a lot of positives, you know, in any given situation. And I think you've got to look at both of those and accept both because they're both part of your life. But then uh, just choose to focus on the positive one. But at the same time, uh, understanding that the, the negative one is there. And I think it's just where you put your focus determines uh, how much success you have and the things you achieve. And we hear similar tips from many of our guests. Often the only barriers that hold us back are our own attitudes. And it's just a question of if you want to do something, you can generally figure out a way to do it. And if it's somebody else's attitude that's discouraging you, you just need to find a way around that also. Support for Eyes on Success is provided by Ira, an app that remotely connects people who are blind or have low vision to trained agents for access to visual information. Details are available at 1-800-835-1934. And we're hoping it all works out. We'll find the things we've been dreaming about. We nurture our dreams and precious folds of love. Not daring to Well, that was not our regular breaker tune. That was We're Hoping It All Works Out, composed, performed, recorded, and mixed by Ross, featuring a local session singer for the main vocals. Now let's start by meeting Ross and learning about his musical background. So we've had you on the program once before, Ross, but maybe for listeners who haven't heard that episode or don't remember, can you reintroduce yourself? Hello, my name is Ross McGregor. Yeah, I live in Australia. I was um, born in 1949 and I uh, went blind at the uh, age of eight. I had a bit of sight, but it gradually faded. And, um, and I went to the school for blind children. And uh, while I was there, that's when I started learning the piano and music. And then that led me onto a life of music after that. And you've been a professional musician for your entire life, I take it. Uh, yes, it, apart from a, a short stint operating a uh, telephone switchboard and uh, doing public relations work for the institute which ran the, the blind school. And you've been in several areas of music. You've been a producer for many years, back when all the equipment was analog and you had to do it by feel, and you're also a performing musician, right? 
Um, that's right. I started off as a musician. I uh, did that for three or four years, and then I opened a recording studio, and I decided I wanted to work in music, work in sort of like the background of music, I suppose you could say. And, well, I'm still doing it now, but I had a studio for 25 years in Sydney. And when I opened that, I was the first blind person in Australia to have a recording studio. And then and I sold that in 2000 and moved out of Sydney, and uh, I've been using computer recording since then, computer-based recording. That's a big change. And what are your main instruments that you perform with? Uh, a piano and piano accordion. I, I love the piano accordion. Um, I play at a lot of aged care facilities, and a lot of the old folks there love the accordion just because it you know, brings back a lot of memories for them from their – they'll often say – that um, their father used to play or their grandfather used to play, the concertina. And uh, it's a very, I find it's a very ex- expressive instrument. Uh, you can do a lot just by using the bellows, how, how hard you push them. It's a lot of dynamics you can get out of a, an accordion and it can be a very emotive you know, sound. So I enjoy that. So. And it's a whole lot easier to cart around than a piano. Well, that's exactly right. Yes, a little case on a couple of wheels <laughs> and away you go. Support for Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Find out more about partnership opportunities by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is what a music producer does and how the technologies and methods for music production have changed over the years and affected their accessibility. So, Ross, before we get into some of the details about your musical experiences and stories, I understand that you recently won an interesting award in Australia for your musical progression. Uh, that's right. Yeah, I, in my studio, and for those 25 years, I recorded uh, every kind of music you can imagine. I was based in Sydney, which was you know, quite a big recording market. Um, but part of that was I did a lot of country music albums. I recorded over 50 or 60 country music albums. And then uh, this year I was awarded what they call the um, Hands of Fame Award for my contribution to Australian country music. And uh, that was held in Tamworth. And the ceremony, uh, you go down to the park, the park in the, in the town there, and you, you put your hand in wet cement. And then that creates uh, an imprint. And they put a plaque there. And, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm in the Hands of Fame. Oh, I get it. That's where the name comes from. Hands of Fame. You actually stick your hand in cement. My friend Marilyn says when you pull up at the intersection, the the traffic lights there, you you can look over and you can see my hand imprint in the cement wall there. Oh, that's cool. It's very nice of them to award that as a total surprise, you know, when it it came. But, um, yeah, so it was uh, very nice. And I gather that is not the only award you've ever received. I've won uh, a few ARIA awards, which is Australian Recording Industry Association, a bit like a, a Grammy in America, for a couple of uh, two or three albums that I produced for an artist, and they they were gold-selling albums or platinum-selling albums in Australia, so I've got a few awards there, yeah, so. And I understand you've produced quite a number of albums over the years. Yes, in my studio, I did over 300 albums in the time I was there, so. And as I say, it was in every imaginable music style from... Uh, a lot of ethnic music, Arabic music, Polynesian, Italian, Greek, and then uh, all kinds of uh, hip-hop, punk, heavy metal, 
uh, rock, reggae, country, jazz, classical, you know, just about anything he could. And I did quite a lot of um, spoken word work and uh, sometimes have a person come and see me that they had set up a little voice recorder in their house because they were spying on their partner <laughs> due to certain suspicions, um, but the recording didn't come out too well, so they brought it to me to see if I could improve the quality of the audio. Oh, my Jeez. gosh. So, so that's great. Ross McGregor, audio detective. <laughs> that's it, yeah. yeah. And uh, I recorded quite a lot of um, foreign language training tapes. And, uh, yeah, so a whole, whole bunch of work just around the general heading of uh, audio. As you may guess, all of that varied experience explains why Ross is one of our main go-to guys when we need advice or assistance with audio editing. So thank you, Ross, for all the help you've given us over the years. So being a music producer is quite a competitive career, and it seems to be tough for a lot of people to get jobs. And I would guess, particularly as a blind producer, it may have been even more of a challenge. How did you sort of break into that and overcome some of the barriers in that profession? Well, I was very single-minded when I, I built the studio. It was quite a big task to build it, renovate the building and organize the finance. And I was just very single-minded, uh, very determined. And I, I know even when I did my first recording job, I had a, um, it was like a punk band came in and recorded. That was my first job. And um, But they said to me, how long have you been doing recordings? And I said, oh, I've been recording for a few months. You know, the, I've done quite a few jobs, which I hadn't at all. But <laughs> I just said that to them because <laughs> I knew I could do the job. And I, I think it's just if you're very single-minded, you know, if you have a very strong focus on something, um, that you can achieve a lot if you um, don't allow yourself to, you know, put off by uh, setbacks or delays that may happen. And I, I just had that, I suppose. And then as I started doing work, uh, it just becomes word of mouth, you know, if, if people hear, hear your work and if they like what you did, well, then they, they give you a ring or other people talk about you. And, and I think yeah, you just build up that connection. So you talked about setting up the studio. What kinds of equipment would be involved in setting up a full-fledged recording studio? Well, um, where the building was located, it was on a main road and we also under a flight path of a, from the airport. So uh, the first requirement was to make it soundproof. So I had an acoustics consultant design that for me and both rooms were built on what they call floating floors, uh, which isolates the room from outside sounds. So that was the first requirement. And then the equipment, I just bought all standard equipment off the shelf. I bought a uh, A-track tape recorder, which is roughly about, say, three foot high, three foot wide and three foot deep, and a mixing console which I started with a uh, 12 channel. And uh, I just had a couple of little um, adaptations made for that. I, I bought a buzzing audio level meter from a mob called Science for the Blind. They were in um, Pennsylvania. Oh, so you could hear the audio levels. Yeah, you could plug it across the channel and it would just make a, a buzzing noise. Mm -hmm. And the buzzing got more frantic as the level got higher. And you, you knew how to set it so that you had the right amount of buzz. And then I put I put Braille labels, of course, on a lot of things, the gear and the channels and things. That, um, but that's basically the only adaptations that I made. Later on, I, I got a um, Eureka laptop, a computer, which is, say, similar to a voice note or, you know, Braille note in power. This is back in the 80s. So I used that. So they were the, And, of course, the Perkins. So they're about the only kind of 
adaptions that I've made, you know, to the just normal standard gear that you bought off the shelf. So this sounds like setting up your first studio must have been quite an investment and that's a big deal. How did you get started in that? You know, sometimes you need some money to get going and before you become famous. That's right. Yeah, well, I had to borrow money from, um, I don't know who it was back then, the bank or building society, or we had a mortgage on the property. Um, so just did, I don't remember exactly what I did now, but, but um, I think when, when you're very single-minded, you just find ways to make things happen. You know, yeah. you just you just say, well, I've, I've got to achieve this. This is my goal. And so, well, what am I going to do uh, to finance this? And say, well, I've, I can do this and that and this and that. You just say, well, I've got to do something because I've, I've got to build the studio. So it's when you have that way of thinking, I think you just, you know, create opportunities in your life and, so I had I had a bit of, quite a bit of help too from my family. Mm-hmm. My father and my brother helped in some of the building work, and um, yeah, just got it set up, and then away we went. So it sounds like you would attribute a lot of your success to perseverance and just this single-mindedness. But it must have taken some time to grow the business. Was there any? sort of single point where you got beyond it and said, ah, now I've made it and, you know, it's a little bit easier to run this business? Was there a turning point? No, I can't remember that as such. It may have happened in the first two or three years, but I can't remember a point as such. But uh, I know it definitely got harder in the last, say, uh, eight years because people were setting up little home studios. So they were doing work at home, whereas in the past they would have come to a studio like mine. So there was a lot more competition. Yeah, so the market definitely got a lot, lot tougher towards the end. But now I, I remember, remember my father said to me, twelve months after I started, he said, well, "How's it going there?" I said, "I'm going well." I said, "I'm, you know, I'm getting work and going well." And he said, "Well, I'm quite surprised." He said, "I didn't think it'd last this long." <laughs> <laughs> it's always nice when your parents believe in you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at least he had the sense not to tell you. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He he helped me a lot in the building of the studio, and but I, he must have thought, oh well, I'll help him get it going and see how it goes. <laughs> but he he mightn't have been very optimistic about um about its longevity. You know. Now, as you said, you started out with all this analog equipment, and then it was possible to do this with digital equipment in one's home. And you eventually must have made the transition from all this analog equipment to doing things in a digital fashion. How did that go? Tell us a little bit about that transition. Well, I um, sold the studio in 2000 and moved out of Sydney. So uh, all my analog gear went with a sale. So um, yeah, then I got a computer and um, started using our Cubase program because we had used it in the studio before then. But I had an assistant engineer who operated the computer for me because back in those days you didn't have much access, you know, with um, talking voice and so on. And so I continued with Cubase, but it wasn't very accessible, but I found a computer programmer who wrote some scripts for me. So I use it and I'm still using it today. And I was recording all that time, but only in a part-time manner. Uh, I wasn't back into full-time recording, just doing jobs here and there as I felt like it or, you know, people that I... Uh, I wanted to work with because when you run a studio, you have to record with anyone who walks in the door. Doesn't matter how good they are or how bad bad they are, you have to do the job. Or even if you don't like their music or you don't like their songs, you still have to do the job and try and do the best job you can for them. So you had a whole mixture of people come in. You know, there were some people who were very good, uh, some people who were pretty crook but thought they were good, 
and some people who were very good but didn't think they were very good. You know, they <laughs> very um, apologetic about themselves, but they had great talent. So all that different. And there's a lot of psychology too when you're working in a studio. There's people are recording, they're under a lot of pressure. And so um, you have to you know, be aware of that and, and create a friendly environment. So they, when they're recording, they feel relaxed and they can feel they can give their best performance and you have to be very encouraging of people. So when I um, sold the studio, I, I just went back to doing more of my own projects and just doing work here and there that I, you know, I, I would sort of pick and choose what I would do. My impression is that sometimes producers tend to be the most overlooked part of making an album or a recording. You know, people focus on the musicians who are often famous and in the news and in the media. But the producer, I think, really is a key part of putting this all together, making the music sound a particular way. Tell us a little bit about what a producer does and why this is such an important job. Well, a producer can have an objective view. Whereas an artist, you know, because it's their own material, it's very hard to be objective about yourself. There are very few artists who can who can produce themselves and do it well. I mean, I think probably people like Stevie Wonder could produce himself and probably Paul Simon and, you know, a few people like that. But a lot of people, um, it's a big mistake to produce yourself. And you'll find a lot of the top recording acts always have the same producer they work with, you know, for quite a long period. And they build up that relationship. And obviously you think of things like the Beatles had George Martin and, you know, many famous artists had that. And it, it was a long-term part of their recording career. And uh, they build up a relationship or a rapport with that producer. I guess it helps to have a consistent team working together so you know how to work with each other. Also, it seems to me that being an artist and being a producer are two very different skills. Oh, well, well, definitely, yeah. Definitely the, the producer has to um, overlook the the mixing part of it and the audio production as, as much as the musical side of it, you know, the musical arrangements, um, song choice for the album, uh, even order of songs, uh, and what musicians you're going to book, if you're going to book, uh, say, session musicians to come and play on your album and even come up with uh, creative ideas, you know, in addition to what the artists may have themselves and if they have a good relationship, well, the artist will see that as an, an addition to their work, not, not a threat to their work or their creativity. It's just uh, an addition to what they're doing themselves. And so I, I think it's very important myself to have someone who's got an outside view to what you're doing as an artist, who's got that objectivity that you, you often won't have yourself. I assume when a musician you've never worked with before comes into your studio and you're going to be recording and then producing the music that they are creating, that you start out with a conversation about what kind of feeling they want to have and what kind of backup instrumentation and that kind of stuff? Well, yeah, some people would come to the studio and they only want me to record them. So I'm just a recording engineer, not the producer. But then other people will want me to produce uh, and record and yeah so you definitely have a, a talk about things and just try and find out what they're aiming for what kind of sound they like and the, you listen to the songs they've got you go through the songs and that might take you know a few weeks before you actually start recording so tell us about one of the recordings you've done of which you're most proud or is most special to you well, I work with the the country music albums I did. Uh, there's an artist, a lady called Evelyn Berry, B-U-R-Y. 
and um, I did about eight albums with her. She was a very good singer and a good writer. She was sort of like middle-of-the-road country, and uh, I had a lot of freedom with her in terms of the arrangements and the musical backing. So uh, we would discuss <clears throat> the basic uh, tempo of the song and the key and the structure, and uh, she'd come in and record her vocals with the, with the band, and then she'd go home because she lived well, a couple of thousand miles away. And then I would just do all the overdubs. I'd bring in the, you know, book the banjo player or guitarist or dobro or harmony singers. And uh, we were really on the same wavelength, you know, whatever I did. Like she, when I finished it, I'd send it up to her and then she would really love about, say, 90% of what I did. Uh, and she might say, I'll oh, just turn that thing down there or take that off there when she, when she heard it. And I did an album with her. It was the last one I did with her back in the late 90s and, we had a local band in Sydney called the Feral Swing Cats. And uh, so I had them accompany Evelyn for that album. And, um, yeah, I was just, just really proud of the end result, the the musicianship and the arrangements. And, yeah, so that was one album that stood out for me. That must have been very rewarding. Oh, it was, yeah. So from your standpoint, there must be a lot more work than people really appreciate. If one is trying to record a three- to five-minute song, it just doesn't happen in three to five minutes, I presume. Oh, no. You might do a 12-song album and you might spend, say, 200 hours in the studio you know, recording that. And then another many hours mixing it down and producing it and mastering it, etc. That's right. I used to record a children's song artist called Peter Coombe. And in one of his songs, he had a little comedy voice and the little part where the music stopped and he went, Oh, like that was a little comedy effect. And he spent three quarters an hour recording that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Trying different, oh, or, oh, or, oh. He's doing all different voices like that just to, just to try and find the right one. When they're recording, when they're doing their vocals, sometimes you'll get a really good take uh, within one or two attempts. Some some people do do their best work in the first two or three goes. Other people need to warm up for a while and do six or eight takes. Mm -hmm. It is amazing to me that if you guys have done your job right, the final output just sounds like it just rolls off their tongues and their instruments and it just sounds so easy. But there's a lot of work that goes on under the hood. That's right, yeah. If you've recorded a song and you play it to a friend and the song goes for three minutes and they say, oh, that's good, and that's all that happens. You know, <laughs> it takes three minutes to, to hear it and to say that and end of story. I said, yes, but that took me, you know, 30 hours to get that. I say, oh. <laughs> you know, I've tried recording things with other friends of mine in my trio in Rochester, and... You know, after a while, you start doing more and more takes. You want to get it perfect, and it almost becomes kind of a drag, and it's and it's hard to get it fresh and keep it interesting after you've done so many takes. Uh, that's exactly right. Yes, you reach a point, I think, where it just starts losing its you know feel or magic. You use that word magic, whatever that means, but uh, it starts to lose that. Then you just think, oh, let's can it. And I, I would have a singer come into the studio, say they're doing an album, like let's say Evelyn. And she'd be booked to come in at three o'clock this afternoon, and she would come in and start recording. And I would say, oh, "Ev, look, I, I just—it's not happening today. You know, it's just not happening. I think it's best to leave it and come in tomorrow." I would say, "Well, look, let's can it. Come back tomorrow afternoon and, and try again." 
Well, on that note, let's hear another one of Ross's creations. Let's have all kinds of people living all kinds of ways. Make this world a peaceful, happy place. Now it's up to you and me to set all people free and share this world together so we all can live in peace. That was All Kinds of People, composed, performed, recorded, and mixed by Ross with a local session singer doing the main vocals. Now for today's final item, how to contact Ross McGregor and how to learn more about his work. So if people would like to contact you, would you like to share your contact information with our listeners? Yes, well, my email is rossmcg, so it's R-O-S-S-M-C-G, at hotkey, that's uh, H-O-T-K-E-Y, dot net, dot A-U. And do you have a website? A website is www.rosspiano.com.au And what will people find on your website? Well, they'll find some products that I've released. I've put out some sing-along DVDs, which are mainly aimed at aged care facilities and um, where the people can sing along with the old songs and they see the words come up on the screen, you know, a bit like a karaoke. Oh, fun. So I've got two of those DVDs out. Then I've got a piano a CD which is called It's Dusty on My Piano, and that's an album I did of uh, songs by an artist called Slim Dusty, who was a very famous Australian country artist, plus a general bit of blurb. And uh, I have an, another website, which is www.rossmcgregormusic.com.au, and that's more my album production side of things and some of the things I've done there and some of my ideas and thoughts about... Um, you know, being a producer or what, how a producer works with the artist. Well, if people are looking for a producer, now they know where to go. That's it. That's it. Do you have a social media presence? Um, no. No. I, uh, I've got a Facebook page. I'd only use it if I was, say, releasing a new album or something. I'd, I'd put a plug up there on it. And... Well, it sounds like things are going well for you these days and you're having a lot of fun. Yes, certainly enjoying life. And um, moving over here to Foster was a great move. And, yeah, musically, just keeping busy and you know, doing things I like to do and still have a few goals and ambitions to, you know, to work towards. So. so, of course, if you want to connect with Ross or have questions for him or want to go to his website, all of that contact information will be in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. And also... We did a previous episode with Ross. It was episode 1130, so it was like about eight years ago. And if you'd like to listen to that episode to see what's changed since then, put the number 1130 into our search field on the website or put in music or production in the search field, and you'll find all kinds of shows about those topics. That's it for show number 1945. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about the Bristol Braille multi-line refreshable Braille display. Bristol Braille is now taking orders for and shipping the Canute 360, a refreshable multi-line Braille display with 360 characters. 
We'll talk with Ed Rogers, founder and managing director of Bristol Braille, about how the device works and how the designers managed to make the Canute 360 at a price that makes it a viable option for Braille users. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show, or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs, find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts, and much more at www.eyesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes and follow us on Facebook at Eyes on Success or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.